Shalom. Welcome again to Secrets of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we welcome you to today's edition. And thank you very, very much for giving us your time. And if you would like to comment or make a suggestion for us, please email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com and check out the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, what seems like only yesterday in many ways, uh, <laughs> as I think about it, uh, way back in June of 1972, as a young rookie rabbi, um, we were present at my ordination. And coincidentally, at that ordination, um, my classmate, Rabbi Sally Presan, was ordained. And that started this whole revolution. And it really has been a revolution. Fast forward 50 some years. Um, the nature of American Judaism and certainly the nature of American liberal Judaism has radically shifted. Quite recently, uh, the Central Conference of American Rabbis produced this very, very interesting book called The First 50 Years, A Jubilee in Prose and Poetry Honoring Woman Rabbi, Women Rabbis. It's what it looks like. It's available through the CCR Press. And we are very honored today to have with us one of the editors of that book, uh, Rabbi Sue Levy Elwell. And um, to, to, as full disclosure, I've known Rabbi Elwell for a few years. We used to work together uh, for the Union for Reform Judaism. Uh, she's a very, very gifted uh, colleague, writer, poet, um, and editor and author of some of her own books. But today we want to focus in on the first 50 years. So first of all, Sue, nice to see you. Welcome. Welcome to Seekers of Meaning. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, and delighted to be with you, and always delighted to be with my friend, Richie Address. Well, thank you, thank you. You you edited this book along with uh, Jessica Greenbaum and uh, Hara Person, and it is a, it's a very interesting book. It's a combination. It does have uh, poetry and, and little essays in it, um, some honors. The whole, several pages at the beginning of the book have honors for some of the, our female colleagues. This is, uh, I would imagine knowing you, uh, has, was a labor of love, uh, in many, in many ways. Um, tell me just how did this whole thing emerge with you? How did this get started? I have been very blessed over the years to have a wonderful relationship with Hera Person, who is the executive director of the CCAR. And she began her rabbinic career as the director of the URJ Press. And when you and I worked for the URJ, she and I were colleagues, um, got, be, got to know one another. And when she took the helm of the CCAR, I was truly delighted because I knew what a talented person she is and how committed she is to producing books that will expand the knowledge um, and the insight and the deepen the spirituality of a very wide range of people. Because we, the CCAR Press, um, produces the liturgical sources, the prayer books, the song books for our movement, and also a wide range of other titles. And I had been privileged to work with the press previously on a Haggadah, that was one, great fun because I worked very closely with an artist. And 
Hera came up with this idea of doing a tribute book to celebrate 50 years of women in the rabbinate. And she and I are both lovers of poetry. She had created a subsequent Haggadah with Jess, Jessica Greenbaum, and said, let's put together a book that includes both short essays by rabbis and others to celebrate 50 years, and we'll also include poetry. And because Jessica is quite a, a wonderful poet on her own, the three of us became a team um, to create this book. And we reached out quite widely um, to our rabbinic colleagues and also to many others who we knew had been touched by women rabbis in one way or another, had worked with them, had been married by them, um, had the other benefit of life cycle um, over the 50 years, and folks who could provide some insight into the wide sweep and range um, of experience over five decades. So when Hera approached me, I thought, oh, how wonderful. Another opportunity to work with people I really respect. Um, Jess and I did not know one another, but of course, when we're when we have the opportunity to work closely with others, it's it's always I hope for others a great treat, and this was for me. That that's um, we, we work with the CCR Press a lot of times, and and uh, they do a wonderful job. I've worked with Hara for few years, many years. Um, look, this whole revolution, and it, and it is a revolution. Uh, you've been in, involved with this in a variety of different ways. Uh, you serve pulpits. You served on an administrative level with us at the URJ. Um, you've written, you've spoken, you've involved in Israel. You're part of this revolution. Sue, what's been the greatest gift? And what's been the greatest challenge in these 50-some years, personally, personally? I think in some ways the greatest gift was that I was able to enter the rabbinate in my early 30s, which now seems ridiculously <laughs> young. But at the time, the, the story, um, the trajectory was that people graduated from college or even knew before they went into college that they wanted to pursue the rabbinate. And in fact, when I was a senior in high school, I had the opportunity to attend um, a program at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati for, in some ways it was for pers prospective students, but it wasn't because it was only for boys to be prospective students. For the rest of us, it was like, okay, the girls can come along. And so it um, it was called, it had a great name, and I'll come up with it in a minute. Um, we all went to Cincinnati, and we were seniors in high school. So we had already applied to college, and there were several young men on this trip with me, and I met kids from around the country. They were mostly from the East Coast, from the Northeast. And they had already applied to HUC as they were going to go to the University of Cincinnati and be students at HUC. The and, undergraduate program, right. I yes, remember that. So the, there was this kind of ramp 
into the college. And I, I stood there and I thought, what? This is so unfair. What about me? This could be my life. But I knew it couldn't be. And I remember standing in a dormitory room and looking across the street at the University of Cincinnati and thinking, this is not okay. But there were almost no words for it. And I went off to college, not the University of Cincinnati. Um, and then when I was getting ready to graduate, I actually heard that there might be women going to Hebrew Union College. And in fact, when I graduated from college, Sally Presand was a student in your class. And, but it was almost as if it was something in the air, you know, like this little bird, you know, or someone dropped, you know, a little gift, but it wasn't quite real. It was almost like a dream. So I went off to graduate school in Jewish studies um, and pursued what became my first master's degree. Um, and only later did I realize that or did I learn that indeed Sally had been ordained with you? They didn't say Sally Priest ordained with Richard Address. But no, no, no. I, I, I saw that article. No, we were, the, the rest of us, the 30 some of us, we were not included in that New York Times article. Yeah. So anyway, um, ah, the program I went on was called Pilgrimage, which is just so interesting to think about so many years later. So after my pilgrimage, in the spring of 1966, um, it was only later um, in, in 1980, I believe, that I finally applied to college. So um, it was 10 years after I graduated from college myself. I had already pursued a master's degree and actually was almost finished with my doctorate by that time in Jewish history. And I actually was, when I worked on my doctorate, I consulted my amazing, amazing teacher, Dr. Jacob Rader Marcus, who was a professor at the Union College, I was able to get a grant to do dissertation research at the American Jewish Archives and thought, okay, I think this is the time. But I was very anxious about applying because I was already so old. Um, and I also had a child and wanted to have a increase the size of my family. How could I do that and be a rabbi? It was still so early that women were juggling and the school was trying to figure out. They didn't even have a women's bathroom yet on the Cincinnati campus. So I applied and to my great delight and the consternation of many people who loved me, um, I was accepted. It's amazing that so many of the little essays and again, in the book, there's these little, a collection of these uh, brief, and I mean brief, I let about a page, if that, of female colleagues who you're, shared your story, especially in those first couple of years, that I never thought this would happen. I thought I would want to do this, but I never thought, and all of a sudden it became a reality. And um, uh, I think somebody wrote in, in one of the essays, hearing that women uh, could become rabbis, I knew. It was like somebody turned a light switch on in their soul. And there's just a lot of, a lot of colleagues, uh, in, who write this. But what's, what, looking back on you, on this, on this revolution and your involvement, what's, what was the greatest challenge? I think, um, forging a path 
that was really my own. Oh, what do you mean by that? That I, I will actually refer to another colleague, a beloved and extremely talented colleague, Judith Abrams, Judith Zabarenko Abrams, so Judy had was a couple of years ahead of me um, in Cincinnati and took a pulpit. Her first pulpit was at a very large congregation in, I believe, Houston, Texas. And she knew that she wanted to be a rabbi, a teacher, a leader, but she knew she didn't want to be the rabbi of a large congregation and stand in front of folks that way and have a very, um, and be way up on the bima while she was teaching folks below. And I don't, I wish I remember the exact words she said. Um, after she took this job and knew she was going to be an assistant rabbi in a very large pulpit with a rabbi who was very established, that she wanted to be a different kind of rabbi, but she didn't yet know. And I think that was true for many of us as women that mm -hmm. we felt we want to teach, we want to lead, we want to guide, we want to sit with people, but we don't know exactly how, what it will look like, because it doesn't look like the models that we've met. And the models at that time seemed very limited, either teaching at the college, um, which meant for some people pursuing an additional degree or serving in a congregation. And even though we all had wonderful and rich experiences in small congregations, as student rabbis, we wondered about living in some of the places we had served um, in terms of the geographical isolation for those of us who had families or who anticipated wanting to grow a family. Did we really feel that we could raise our family in a place where there were a very small number of Jews and where we would be the primary Jewish focus um, for the entire town. You know, we would be the Jew, the Jewish leader. Would that be fair to our family? So we were all trying to figure out, you know, what does it mean in terms of relationship with our congregants, relationship with our community, relationship with our family? What does this look like? And not that our male colleagues hadn't asked these questions, but for us, we, we were, I think we're reframing them, particularly the family question, not only because we were the ones who were giving birth, but because we were still, we had the legacy. I mean, I, I was ordained in 1986, but there was still the legacy of what is the role of women in our culture? You know, are we the ones who bear and care for children? And we were, by becoming rabbis, we were saying, we are the ones who are the leaders of the community. We are the ones who are the teachers. And we are the ones who are the pastors to our folks. And we are the mothers, the sisters, the partners in our families as well. So the... You know, right now, 51 years later, if you walk the halls of the Hebrew Union College, uh, Jewish Theological Seminary, Reconstructionist Rabbinic Seminary, some of the other, I would, I would imagine some of many of the others, especially the residential and, and the, the non-residential uh, seminaries, the majority of students are women. Mm. Uh, so, you know, this may be a, a naive question, but it's, 
there's subtle, there's levels. Is the revolution over? Oh, no. It, uh-huh. it very uh-huh. much continues because women open the doors. And then all of a sudden we realize, oh, not all women are the same. Some of us are gay. Some of us are non-binary. And now what about our gay brothers? And what about others? So the whole, it's more of a gender revolution, I believe. And I think of my beloved teacher and friend, Rachel Adler, who wrote, I wish I knew the year exactly, but it's been quite a few years since yeah. her amazing and important book, Engendering Judaism. Engendering Judaism, right? It's about a 20-year-old book. Yes. Um, it's right over there, by the way. It's right yeah. at some, you can't see it, but it's over there. Okay. So we all need to continue to read that. Um, as she reframed so many of the ways we think about our tradition and also particularly the way we think about partnership. And when folks create a couple, what is the role? You know, we've had many, we've rethought this a lot and it's not just women rabbis, um, but thinking, do we need a ketubah? She create, she created something called the Brit Ahuvim, the whole idea of a Brit between beloveds and we've cracked it open and it's actually quite a there were some beautiful essays in this book um and the essays are all 250 words so we asked folks okay can you distill your life experience um into a short piece um that in some ways makes it i think very fun and easy reading um because the pieces are brief but they're very rich so the revolution has just begun. Well, you know, you you alluded to some of the the gender issues and that part of the revolution. Uh, our colleague Rabbi Kukla wrote in in the book and used the expression "quote an even more expansive future" unquote, which I thought was a very very interesting line. Opening the door, saying, you know, in essence, picking up what you just said, this is a beginning. Uh, but the, but the beginning opened so many different doors that slowly but surely we're beginning to walk in as, uh, American Judaism has changed. And, in, and we are in the process of huge transformation. Um, as you know, you, you wrote in, 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 in the book, your essay, and you use the term, the power of women's voices. The power of women's voices. Some would say that the spiritual revolution in the movement in the last 50 years is a direct result of the power of women's voices. Would you agree with that? Yes, no, maybe? Or was this part of a larger trend? I think by, I mean, here we're in a deeply, deeply patriarchal and hierarchical tradition, in some ways hierarchical. This is a much bigger conversation. And what does patriarchy really mean? But the fact that so few women's voices were preserved in the sacred writings, um, and by as we women entered the uh, even the seminary, I mean, in the, the first questions were, wait a minute, where are the women? Where are the women's voices? Where are the women who came before us? Um, one of my beloved classmates, Linda Motzkin, wrote her rabbinic thesis on 
she was she had a baby um, near the end of our time at HUC, and she wondered what did the midrash say about pregnancy and birth giving. And of course, all the voices that were preserved were the voices of men. Some of them were enormously sensitive and beautiful and expansive, and um, and very rich in terms of the stories they told. But none of none of the voices that are preserved in the tradition are the voices of women who were and have been traditionally the birth givers and the nurturers, the primary nurturers of the next generation. And of course, there is there is no Judaism, there is no tradition of any kind when um, we fail to pass it on and transmit it to the next generation. And so um, discovering, uncovering, and sometimes creating women's voices from the past as we use our voices in the present. So it's that's a huge opening. So the just stepping back or, or on these last 51 years, what, um, what's your perspective of now what really could possibly be argued the third generation now of, uh, of female colleagues? And what's it, what's it, is there a profound difference from the young woman being ordained now? Uh, as opposed to that second generation, as opposed to that very, very limited first generation Sally, and it was a it was a couple of years after her from the next group. What what what's been the difference? Is there has there is there a difference the way in the ordinaries? Well, I think it's we are very much a part of American culture and social change and the resistance to change in our culture. Um, I mean, you know, we're the folks who um, had the first can serious candidate for the president of the United States and the deep, deep distress at the way um, that election was rigged against her. Um, so, it's not just about feminism. It's about about honoring um, how women and those who are not cis white males in our culture um, have been excluded, erased, ignored, um, be become invisible to too many. And so we're in a revolution um, in our country in terms of the way we see one another, in terms of the way we see the people with whom we share this country and also the planet, that, that we grew up in a, for many of us, in an Ashkenazi, white, privileged world where the voices were those of white cis males, as I've said. And for, and that's not who our people have ever been. And so bringing women in was only the beginning of saying, we are much more diverse and complex and rich, and we need to hear voices that we've never listened to before. 
And so I think this is just the beginning. So for this beautiful new generation that I'm privileged actually to continue to work at the college in the role of spiritual director. So I have the opportunity to hear these young colleagues, um, men and women and non-binary students, cantors and rabbis, I hear them into speech and about their own story and how they are, are looking at the world that they are walking into. What does it mean for them to become leaders in a tradition that's changing and in a world that's changing? And yet we have so many values that are not changing, that are, I mean, these, you know, we have these essential beliefs in the fact that we are all created in God's image, that we all have a responsibility to, to make this world a better place than we found it that we all have a responsibility to care for the earth and to care for one another with deep, deep compassion. And so. How much has, in, in, in that desire to care and in these new, this I'll call it the third generation of female colleagues, how much has this, these revelations in the last four or five years across the seminaries, um, of abuse, the sexual abuse, harassment, et cetera, impacted. Um, I mean, you, you, as you said, you are involved with students at the college. Um, has that had an impact upon them? Has it changed the way they view their relationships with, let's say, uh, male colleagues? Um, could you just speak to that? Because what? it is part of the part of this. It is part of the history of these last fifty years. You can't yes, get around it. Yes, yes. I mean, this whole I issue of people who are in positions of power and privilege misusing that power and privilege, and and doing it unconsciously, you know. Um, and so, part of the work that we've been doing is to bring that to our awareness and to say there was behavior between folks that was not appropriate, okay, and deeply hurtful. And so what does that mean for going forward to say there are, that we need to treat each other. I mean, if we truly treated each other as those who are created in God's image, then abuse can't happen. Because we are looking at the Holy One's face when we look into the eyes of another. So that, that if we hurt them, they say, wait, you, you can't do that to me. I am your partner. I am your friend. I am your student. Um, and, but that we are prepared to understand that, that we are not looking at folks as other but rather as, as us. And so this sense of shared responsibility, of compassion for difference, um, for that someone else's path, someone else's uh, understanding of the world may be different than ours is, um, the whole idea of accommodating for difference, um, whether, I mean, you know, our schools, 
but in the Jewish world, how many of us had, I mean, this most obvious thing of having accessible, physically accessible spaces that kind of only occurred to us in the last 20 years, that our spaces were physically inaccessible. How much the more so to have places and to have concepts and to have structures that are barriers, that are emotional barriers, not just physical barriers or intellectual barriers. How do we open up our communities, our sacred spaces, our school to have to encourage and welcome greater access to a wider range of folks who previously didn't think they'd have access to the rabbinate. And one of the things I will say is that for all of the difficulties that came out of the pandemic and our inability to be physically connected to one another, we also found that for some for whom it was difficult to have physical access to our seminary, being at home, being able to learn, being able to learn on the often maligned Zoom opportunities, you know, that was actually a gift that they could then pursue the rabbinate or the, even the cantorate. And the, some of the people who are watching us now know that there have been some amazing um, steps forward to being able to sing together on even on these complicated platforms um, that was initially impossible. So that we, now this is not to say that being in person, um, that we don't need to be in person anymore. I think, of course, we all know that sitting with another person face-to-face -face is the greatest gift. Um, we do that as much as we can. Before we run out of time, I, I do want to mention one thing, uh, that in the book, and you talk about opening the doors to other options, other types of individuals entering the rabbinate. And then you have this wonderful essay in the book uh, from Daphne Lazar Prince, uh, Price, I'm sorry, Price, about women being ordained in the Orthodox community. And I just want you to speak to that because there may be people listening or watching this saying, well, this is all well and good. If I'm a reformed rabbi, a conservative rabbi, reconstructionist rabbi, a humanist rabbi, a renewal rabbi, a rabbi, blah, blah, blah. But the Orthodox, no, no, no. And all of a sudden, here you have on page 59 this very, very lovely um, essay by uh, Daphne. So just briefly, could you just comment on how you included that? Because I think it's a brilliant inclusion. Well, we're very fortunate that we know Daphne, and she's an extraordinarily extraordinary soul. Um, and her own journey took her into the reform movement as a, an observant Orthodox woman. And I think that in that way, you know, it, as more and more of us stretch our wings and are able to sit and learn with people of other backgrounds, um, then we see that we're all, we all share this same goal of supporting and caring for and moving the Jewish people and our rich Jewish heritage beyond the boundaries of our own lifetimes. And so 
I do want to say, since I'm speaking to you in a year of enormous change and strife and heartache and hope in our beloved state of Israel, where there are those who would like to turn our state of Israel into a theocracy, are there are those um, who are in the, who have been serving in the Knesset um, in parties that exclude women's participation and deny the power of women's voices. And I know there are so many on the so-called right in the more observant communities, in Orthodox Judaism, and even in the Haredi community, who know that women's wisdom has built this house. And without women's voices and women's insight, we cannot continue the Jewish people. So those who would deny women access to buses, to beaches, to bamot, to bimas, that is not the future. The future includes women rabbis in the reform movement, and I believe that the future includes women serving in the Orthodox community as there already are. I live in Philadelphia. We have an amazing rabbah serving in South Philadelphia, an Orthodox community where people are physically separate, but she is the teacher and the rav. And we're going to see that more and more. We're seeing it across America. We're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it in South America. There's a new seminary in Madrid. There's a new seminary in Paris. They are educating women for service to the Jewish people. We, women and men and non-binary folks, people of all shades of skin and all backgrounds are the future of the Jewish people. Well, as one of our colleagues wrote in, in, in an essay, uh, this is the beginning of a new Jewish narrative. And I think um, if uh, the first 50 years of Jubilee in prose and poetry honoring women rabbis um, really takes its place in, within that corpus of the revolution and really provides a, a, a very lovely foundation for this new Jewish narrative that you speak uh, so well of and are part and a participant in. So to Darabha, and um, it's not too late to wish you a Shana Tova as well, because we're still in the holiday season. Uh, the first 50 years, a Jubilee and prose poetry honoring women rabbis, uh, Rabbi Suli Vi'ewa, one of the authors. Uh, one of the editors and an author, along with Jessica Greenbaum and Hara Person. Sue, thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, continued good luck, good health, uh, and a sweet and healthy and happy and joyful New Year's as you um, commute between Philadelphia and Tel Aviv. So uh, just take care of yourself and be well. And thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. To all of you, thank you again for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. We appreciate your support. Again, if you'd like to contact us, email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to help us continue the work of the, of the Jewish Sacred Aging and these podcasts, you go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, and scroll down to the very, very conveniently located Donate button. Click on there. Just please follow the prompts. We appreciate your support. Seekers of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubetkin Media Companies in beautiful Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a shout out to our brilliant producer, Steve Lubetkin. 
Thank you again for joining us. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. I look forward to greeting you again on our next Seekers of Meaning podcast and TV. In the meantime, Shalom, Shana Tova, and most of all, be kind to one another. Bedar Rabbah, Shalom. Thank you.